In the early days of the Philadelphia mob, strategic and diplomatic thinking combined with the time-honored rules of Omerta ensured a peaceful and profitable era. But by the 1990s, what used to be a well-oiled criminal machine is now a human meat grinder. A horrified public now under siege views a staggering body count on the residential streets they call home. Among the carnage, a man is born for the underworld. A man whose father paved the way for his life of crime. A man who has embraced his criminal heritage but has no regard for its traditions. A vicious gangster whose propensity for violence is succeeded only by a sense of style and showmanship. A master of the media who revels in the limelight and literally dares his enemies, including law enforcement, to try and take him down. This is the legend of Joseph Skinny Joey Merlino. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five dudes of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. So, it's been a few weeks. Where the hell you guys been? Witness protection. <laughs> <laughs> I think people have a perception that since we're family and we do all this stuff together that we actually see each other. I don't think I've spoken to you guys hardly (laughs) since the last show. I don't know the last time I saw you, to be honest, in person. You know when you're going to see me? In five days, we're going to uh, see Ori Spado at the Mom Museum in Vegas. Vegas, baby. I would say I'm 99.9% sure we're going to be there just because I haven't confirmed anything, the hotel or the plane tickets or anything else I set up, so... There's that small chance that I botched this whole thing, you know. (laughs) We're going to be playing poker with each other at the international airport. (laughs) Trying to win some money at Book Hotel. You would think uh, Reeve could kind of map things out for us. I tried. Do you know where the uh, Four Queens is? Yes. Is it walkable to the museum? Excellent. Then we're fine. Then we're fine. As long as we land in a suitable time, we'll be okay. Yeah, you'll be fine. All right, so tonight, Skinny Joey Merlino. Yeah, I would like yes. that to be my nickname. Skinny Joey? Skinny Ree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lo- this guy's kind of ripped. I looked him up. He's thin. Uh, I thought his arms are pretty big. I thought Skinny Joey was a little... Uh... But it's probably because of his cousin, Fat Joey. They have the same name, Joseph. I think you got it. So there's Skinny Joey and there's Fat Joey was called Fat Joey Merlino. He's the one that owned the Rebar Corporation. Oh, yep. yep. So they just split him up, Fat Joey and Skinny yeah. Joey. Yeah. Well, that's like, um, if anybody watches... Uh, Sopranos. You Tony Uncle Johnny and Tony Uncle Eddie or something. Well, and it's like, Rescued Me, did it, if you watch up Rescued Me with Dennis, what's his face? Dennis Leary. Yeah, it was an awesome show. But they had Black Chris and White Chris. I think that was their names. How strange is it that I came through with the celebrity name? I would never get a celebrity name right. Zach knows. She never does. She never does. I'm terrible at that stuff. I don't watch movies. I don't get into the celeb crap and don't care about their political bullshit. Speaking of movies, Zach's got a podcast called Circle City Cinema. I heard that's doing pretty good. Yeah, baby. It's going well. The Oscars were last week, and I got to say, not as much politics as you'd think. I mean, there was some. There's always going to be some, but like. Billy probably knows Steven Soderbergh. You know who that is? No clue. I'd say he's one of the 10 most important directors of the 21st century. He did Ocean's Eleven. He did, like, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic. 
those movies. Okay, okay. But he produced the ceremony this year. It didn't end the way I thought it would. I thought Chadwick Boseman would win Best Actor, but... Yeah, wasn't that like a BS thing? Because like uh, everybody I mean, thought he should? Well, it was definitely a risk by the producers because Best Picture always goes last because that's the big one. I mean, obviously this year since he died. Right, so was the sad. Favorite. Really sad, but he was yeah. the favorite to win, so... They thought, okay, we'll put Best Actor last. It'll be a good moment. But Hopkins won. Yeah, so they they took a risk with that one. Even though he didn't win, I thought it was worth the risk. I thought if Bozeman was going to get upset, Anthony Hopkins was going to do it. And Anthony Hopkins, like, gave him some praise the next day because he wasn't there. What was he in? What was Hopkins in? He was in a movie called The Father. It was actually pretty personal because, you know, we've all three had to deal with, like, dementia and stuff. And he played a guy uh, getting hit really hard by dementia. So I thought he pulled it off. I thought he deserved the Oscar, but um, still kind of uh, sad that Chadwick didn't win. But sure. No complaints about Hopkins winning. Hey, Ree, how's this for a horrible podcast idea? Me and you do celebrity gossip. <laughs> so Henry Bleberman got a DUI. Oh, shit. Well, that's not surprising, <laughs> knowing his horrible childhood. Whoa, you know who he is? Yeah. She knows the random ones. Like she, I made him up. I know you did. I'm going along with the story. <laughs> I was picturing it go like this. I'm like, he got a DUI. You go, no way. I go, yeah. You're like, who is he? I'm like, I have no idea. Then we have to Google it and like figure out who everybody is. For the record, uh, Henry Lieberman is an actual person. <laughs> Now he's going to call into the show and be upset. Intern just pulled up Henry Blaberman. He's like a guy. Yeah, he might be some kind of attorney. We might be a... We might have to cut that. (laughs) (laughs) I just said he had a DUI. He didn't. He didn't. Oh, I was going to add, though, the cool thing about Zach's podcast, you know, is like, you're the star of that one, right? Uh, yeah. You could say that. (laughs) Which can't be nearly as rewarding as working with Rhea and I. But you make it seem like fun. Yes. You've got to be like, it, it can't be as fulfilling. What are you talking but, about? But maybe it is more fulfilling being alone. I gotta say, I, you, I will say. What do you say? No, no, I will say, like, uh, <laughs> getting to do uh, monologues and stuff, get, it's pretty cool. I, I like it, but. You don't miss our constant interruptions and Joshua his little swings in left and right. Joshua tripping over the cord five minutes before. <laughs> Spilling coffee. coffee. <laughs> Oh, God. Let's start with the introductions. <laughs> Partners in crime, I'm still your host, Bill Crooks. Just an ordinary guy, nothing to worry about. Sitting between Zach the Zip Griffith. Zach the Zip, always here. And I'm every bit of six foot. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and chiming in with the uh, snide comments, we've got Anne-Marie. Giuliano. Uh, I was just gonna. I was gonna try to do like a Madonna thing with okay, you. Okay, let's do it again. Yeah. Well, no, we're not doing it again. That's your <laughs> intro. That's what you get. Till, till you learn to pick up a cue. Bill, you're six foot with shoes on. Like, come, come on. Ah, come on, <laughs> no, man. They always tried to do this with Kevin Garnett when he was still playing. They were like, oh, he's seven feet with shoes on. It's like, get, he's six ten. Stop. I'm gonna pick you up at our designated location. <laughs> And there's going to be an official size up. I've got it all arranged. Right. It's going to be uh, it's going to be on the record. My six foot. Okay. All right. Which I have to also take point your out shoes that off. There's no one, no one beyond the confines of these walls that even cares. <laughs> but whatever. You take your shoes off. And lurking in the distance, somewhat of a wallflower, <laughs> easy to overlook. It's Joshua the intern. Huh? There you go. <laughs> All right, we got a long, long, long night ahead and a great story. So let's 
get started. Joseph Salvatore Merlino was born on March 13, 1962 in Philadelphia to Italian-American parents Salvatore Chucky Merlino and Rita Giordano. He is one of three children, having two sisters, Maria and Natalie. Young Joey is also the nephew of Philly mobster Lawrence Yogi Merlino, who will turn state's witness against the family and die in 2001, and first cousin of Joseph N. Fat Joey Merlino, a contractor who owns a rebar corporation in Pleasantville, New Jersey. It's fair to say that Joey is essentially born into the Philly mob. Throughout the 70s, Joey's father owns and operates, at least on paper, the 9M Bar on 9th Street and Moya Mensing Avenue in South Philly. Nicky Scarfo himself uses the bar as his headquarters during his ascension to the Philly mob throne. The establishment will later be rebranded as Anthony's Bar. I gotta say, it's a boring name, Anthony's Bar. Maybe he got tired of everybody asking whose bar it was. <laughs> it's Anthony. 1980 sees the execution of Angelo Bruno, and ultimately the appointment of Philip the Chicken Man Testa. The same year, Chucky Merlino is inducted into the family, and by 1981, he has worked his way up to the position of underboss to the infamous Little Nicky, who succeeds Testa after a nail bomb cuts his leadership role short. This murder marks more than the end of Testa. It also seems to mark the end of a relatively peaceful time of the Philly mob. This ushers in the violent era of Nicky Scarfo, who we covered in the last episode. Within the first year, it's believed that he was responsible for at least nine murders. Great rookie season for Nicky Scarfo. Nine murders. <laughs> Meanwhile, not much attention is given to Joey Merlino, a good-looking kid who's not lacking in self-confidence. Since attending grade school at Epiphany of Our Lord in South Philadelphia, young Joey seems to possess at least one particular trait, the knack for finding his own kind. Quickly makes friends with brothers Michael, Mikey Chang Changalini, and Joseph Joey Chang Changalini. So the Changalini brothers are the offspring of Joseph Changalini Sr., who's been a made member of the Philly family since the 1970s. He was known to be a chief enforcer of certain loan sharking operations, and he was a soldier for Frank Sandone, who he eventually has to kill for taking part in the execution of Angelo Bruno. Of course he has to kill him. <laughs> After he carries out the murder, he is promoted to be captain of Sandone's crew. If nothing deserves a promotion, that does. Long live the king. Yes. It is in August of 1982 that Joey Merlino shows his inclination to the life. Sometime that month, Joey and Salvatore Torri Scafidi, the son of local bookmaker Gaetano Scafidi Sr., are dining at Atlantic City's Lido restaurant when they are involved in an altercation. Two stabbed and pummeled two paying customers who somehow interrupt what would have otherwise been an enjoyable meal. Two years later in 1984, Joey is found guilty on two counts of aggravated assault and a single count of unlawful possession of a weapon. Things do not improve for Molino that year. Shortly after the charges are handed down, the New Jersey Casino Control Commission bars him from all New Jersey casinos. His father is also banned by the same commission. God, that's my greatest fear that I would get banned. <laughs> my my greatest casinos. fear is that I stab somebody with the fork that came with the meal and then they call it an unlawful use of a weapon. <laughs> when you were clearly provided by the establishment. Yeah, they put it on the table. Anyway, go ahead. This year also marks the murder of Salvatore Testa, the son of the murdered Phil Testa. The younger Testa finds himself romantically involved with Joey's sister, Maria. The couple are engaged to be married, 
but Testa reportedly gets cold feet and cancels the wedding. Right, so this was the huge wedding that allegedly had Michael Jackson scheduled to sing as entertainment. And Chucky Merlino, who's still serving as underboss, has a hand in the demise of uh, Sal Testa, but it's widely speculated that the breakup was just a convenient excuse for Scarfo, who wanted to bump him off for reasons that align more with jealousy, paranoia, uh, vengeance than anything to do with a broken heart or lost face. Uh, the hit is orchestrated by Nicholas the Crow Caramondi, who has expressed remorse ah. for having had to do it. You lost me at Michael Jackson. Yeah, he was going to play at the wedding. Apparently. Man, what a what a get. Was he going to do bad and they were going to have a dance-off? You know what happens is like, I'm going to pay for the wedding and I'm bitching about it the whole time and I'm going to do it on a budget and stuff. And as soon as he dumps my daughter, I go, damn it, I had Michael well, Jackson. But that's the up. truth. I'm like, you never cancel an Italian wedding. I'm like, that's a lot of deposits. I mean, it's not like an Italian wedding is 200 people. Yeah, imagine Connie Corleone's wedding yeah. gets canceled. I think they would have all been okay with it. She probably wishes it had after he beat the shit out of her. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 They would have been fine with it. Well, then Thriller come out in 84? Well, that's what I said. Bad. Were they going to do a dance-off to Bad? Bad was not on Thriller, right? Oh, was that? No, it was on Bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I am no longer the worst celebrity uh, person in, in the in Myth the busted. The myth has been busted. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, let's keep it on track. <laughs> By the mid-80s, the Merlino family structure is becoming strained as his father is developing a drinking problem that is becoming increasingly difficult for his associates to overlook. The elder Molino's poor behavior seems to worsen until a fateful day in 1986 when he finds himself in an altercation with members of the Pagan's motorcycle club. The fight escalates until Merlino, presumably fleeing the scene, runs over one of the bikers in his car. This does not sit well with the motorcycle club who responds by shooting up the home of Melina's mother. The mother is reportedly unharmed in the assault, but in the ensuing aftermath, Salvatore is demoted by Scarfo, who seeks to put a little distance between himself and his rogue underboss. Okay, so the Pagans are an outlaw motorcycle club formed in 1959. They're categorized as an outlaw motorcycle club by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or the ATF. They're known to fight over territory with the Hells Angels and other motorcycle clubs. They're currently active in more states and provinces than I care to mention here. And there are nobody that any normal sane person would even think to mess with. So as far as Papa Merlino's drinking, I've read accounts that Scarfo and company worried about him being a bit talkative when he drinks. Uh, the 1980s are also a time of improved FBI surveillance. So they're starting to monitor the Philadelphia underworld, and they're setting up guys like Caramondi on racketeering charges. And uh, Caramondi starts cooperating with the feds against his family. This leads to the indictment of Scarfo and crew. So in 1988, he is sentenced to life in prison for all the usual reasons. A lot going on. The other thing is, like, you know, they shot up the house and the mom survives. Yeah. Philadelphia people are second to none in toughness. <laughs> they are hard to kill. Oh, yeah, we'll find that out later in this story. Mm -hmm. In 1989, the Merlino Patriarch is arrested on numerous RICO charges and handed a 45-year prison sentence. As a result, his wife Rita decides changes must be made, and she divorces her husband. Right, so at this point, there is and really has been a huge power vacuum in Philly. Uh, currently, the top spot has been assumed by John Stampa. So if you'll recall, Stampa was the driver of the car that Bruno was shot in, right? He actually had testified before a grand jury regarding that execution, and apparently he lied to them about certain meetings with gangsters after the hit. 
So he was convicted on perjury charges, and he does about eight years. So he gets out around 1989 and sets his sights on Philly's top spot. Okay. Unfortunately for John Stanfa, Joey Merlino has come of age and wants the leadership role for himself. He immediately begins to move in on Scarfo's old rackets, particularly in the region of South Philly. He moves in on loan sharking, protection, bookmaking, and drug dealing. One thing that immediately sets Merlino and his crew apart is their deviation from the old ways of La Cosa Nostra. These young mobsters are not interested in being cloaked in secrecy and keeping a low profile. They crave the spotlight and seem to want everyone to know that they're the new gangster force in town. Gunner and uh, Scott Bernstein, they did a little show on Joey Merlino. It was pretty quick, but uh, a lot of cool stuff in it. I asked if I could steal that audio. <laughs> they said, feel free. So, uh, yeah, oh, intermittently, nice. I'll probably throw a few things in that they, they put in and stuff. But uh, here's what they had to say about him. Talking about skinny Joey Merlino, who is uh, by far the most compelling modern-day mafia figure. If his reign was in New York, everybody in America would know who he was. He'd be on yeah. the cover of People magazine, on the cover of Time magazine. But because he's in Philadelphia, it's kind of more of a regional fanfare. But, you know, he's, he's an icon in Philly the way uh, Joe Frazier and Rocky Balboa and Julius Irving are. Everybody saw what he wanted. They knew what he wanted, this cowboy gangster stuff. And they were in the streets shaking down dope dealers, you know, all the rackets, the street rackets. That's and they, they love did. the cameras. They love the cameras. Again, a complete opposite of Detroit, where if they never made it on the front page of a newspaper or were in any uh, nightly television news footage, they're thrilled about that. But in Philly, if they're not on the front page of the newspaper, if they're not the lead story on the TV news, they're upset about it. The young Merlinos described by peers as ruthless, power-hungry, bloodthirsty, and scariest of all, obsessed with the act of murder. Joey also obsesses over his public image and the way others perceive him, thus working hard to cultivate an image that many compare to that of the legendary mob boss, John Gotti. Merlino gains a reputation for partying hard and staying out most nights. It is not uncommon to find Joey at local restaurants and nightclubs, and even more likely to find him at sporting events, as Merlino is a diehard fan of Philly sports teams. Merlino hosts an annual Christmas party for the homeless of Philadelphia, and he often invites TV crews to cover his charitable acts. Joey's the only mob boss, maybe in history, that cares about cool. Cool is very important to Joey and that whole crew. You know, they were the cool kids in high school in the late 70s, early 80s, because of who their dads were. Mm -hmm. Then when they were these, you know, young swashbuckling, uh, up and coming mob guys in the late 80s, they were the, the cool 20 somethings that were in all the bars and clubs and people knew, you know, if, if they were there, it was the place to be. His sightings in clubs are marked with he and his childhood friends getting into bar fights. Molino is not the only game in town, however, as Nicodemo Scarfo Jr. has been carrying on his illegal activities on the same turf, which he views as his own, presumably carrying on for his father. On Halloween of 1989, Nicodemo Scarfo Jr. is dining at Dante and Luigi's restaurant in the Bella Vista section of Philadelphia. The restaurant is packed, and Jr. is enjoying a meal of pasta and clams. Perhaps enjoying it a little too much, because he fails to notice the masked man who enters through the front door and heads straight to his table. Disguised as Batman and carrying a trick-or-treat bag, the gunman quickly pulls out a Mac-10 submachine gun and riddles the unsuspecting Scarfo Jr. with eight rounds. 
Scarfo Jr. is badly wounded after being shot in the neck, arm, and chest. Miraculously, none of the shots have pierced his vital organs, and he's released from the hospital less than two weeks after the assault. Doesn't it make you wonder that the mask, like, fall down over his eyes? No, I don't think so. It was 1989, right? So it would have been that Michael Keaton cool Batman mask. It's not that blue Adam West mask. Submachine gun, too. Yeah, the Mac-10. That would have come out that year, that Michael Keaton Batman. Well, maybe that was the problem. He wore the old one. No, that would maybe. be lame. He wouldn't do that. No. He no. wouldn't do that. That was a huge movie. He would have gotten the new stuff. Then how did he miss Spider Organ? This because Philly guys can, can duck and weave, man. Remember Masseria? You start shooting at him from point blank, and he's just all of a sudden, he's like rerun from what's happening. <laughs> That's right. That's the way all these guys are. When someone's shooting at you like that with a MAC-10 and it's going off, and you're, and you're ducking and weaving and moving around and missing vital organs, it's called the Philly Shuffle. Ducking and weaving. <laughs> it's assumed that Merlino is the man behind the attack especially given the fact that little Nicky Scarfo had previously arranged a plot against Joey's father. Merlino wants the Scarfos to know that they are no longer running the South Philly Rackets. Fearing for his and his son's safety, little Nicky transfers Scarfo Jr. to New York and has him inducted into the Lucchese family, where he goes on to become a capo in the organization. seems that 1989 is not quite finished with the Merlino family, as it sees a 27-year-old Joey get caught up in an armored car heist rap that stems from a scheme he perpetrated in 1987. We uh, dug up an article, so we're going to go to our still news correspondent. All right, here we go. Two held in armored truck heist, UPI Archives, August 9th, 1989, Philadelphia. Two men were held without bail for allegedly persuading an armored car guard to spill money sacks from his truck to conceal the theft of $352,000 from one of the bags. U.S. Magistrate Edwin Nathan denied motions for bail made Tuesday by Joseph Merlino, 27, and Richard Barone, 45, after a federal prosecutor contended they posed a danger to the community and might try to flee. Merlino, who has a prior conviction for aggravated assault in New Jersey, is the son of convicted mobster Salvatore Chucky Merlino, who was an underboss for the Philadelphia Atlantic City mob chieftain Nicodemo Scarfo. Merlino and Barone were indicted last week by a federal grand jury on interstate theft and conspiracy charges stemming from an incident in 1987 in which the doors of a federal armored express truck popped open on Interstate 95, spewing money out onto the highway. The guard, Stephen Rinaldi, 24, of Philadelphia, pleaded guilty in June to charges in the case. The indictment alleged Rinaldi, who was alone in the rear of the truck when it was en route from Philadelphia to the company's headquarters in Pensacola, New Jersey, staged the spill to cover up the theft of a white deposit bag containing $352,000. Rinaldi, Merlino, and Barone all were acquainted, authorities said. The indictment said Barone later picked up the money bag and split it with Merlino. Although Rinaldi had been promised half the loot, the FBI said he received only 13000 The rest of the money has not been recovered. That's a great story. We'll just, we'll just say that the door flung open and a bunch of money blew away. I mean, that's the a guy's very like, busy I don't know if that's a good story. He's like, dude, it is such a better story than you got your brains blown out by some armed gunmen. Yes. <laughs> Much. You know, I, I, I think I'd like to try the first one. I'm thinking he didn't get half, and that's why he turned evidence. I think his story was bullshit, and they just sweated him a little bit, and he coughed it up, which is the new way. Either way. 
According to the Gangster Report by Scott Bernstein, the armed heist results in Merlino's first stretch in prison. He gets three years, which he seems to take in stride. It gives him time to think, to plan, and to make new friends. One particularly fortuitous friendship comes in the form of Ralph Natali. Natali is a throwback from the Angelo Bruno era, and despite a significant age gap between them, he and Joey Merlino become well acquainted. It isn't long before the two of them compare notes about the old Philly neighborhood and begin to plan for a hostile takeover of the Philadelphia family. So nevertheless, the Philadelphia underworld has gotten out of hand. A new power structure has to be figured out. So the New York family's officially installed John Stampha as he's more aligned with the old ways of La Cosa Nostra, and they hope that he'll finally bring some stability to the region. The problem is these guys in Merlino's crew really have no idea who he is or why New York is putting up a guy like that in charge. So despite being Bruno's old driver, he's considered an outsider and he's got no business coming into their thing as far as they can tell. Further, these young guys are completely Americanized. They don't have any regard for the old Italian bilingual dagos, right? They just seem like uh, irrelevant fossils to them. And it really reminds me of Luciano and the Mustache Pete situation. Right. You know, that, that was a club at at my college the italian bilingual dagos i couldn't get in because i wasn't bilingual (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't get in but i even grew a mustache and they wouldn't let me into the mustache (laughs) beats ridiculous ridiculous with merlino in prison stanford has time to strengthen and fortify his organization in the underworld power cannot come without money lots of money in a decision he will come to regret Stanfa aligns himself with Ronald Previty. Previty is a Philadelphia police officer turned bad guy. He's been operating in Atlantic City and kicking up to the Philly mobsters for years. Previty is presumably Stanfa's new cash cow, and he is unusually adept in the area of theft, bookmaking, and loan sharking. He serves as Stanfa's bodyguard and is allowed to run his rackets in Philly. According to Previty, he is bringing his boss tons of money. Previty is a violent guy. I saw him in a documentary called Philly Mob, dated back in like 2013, and he talks about beating guys up, stabbing them with screwdrivers, and in at least one case slamming a man's head in a car hood and letting the fan chop into the poor bastard's face. But he kind of has like a gunner attitude about it, and that he's like, you know, you do a few things bad enough, you really don't have to do it all the time. Word gets out. That's a pretty good bad thing. Yeah, by the way, that Philly mob documentary, if you're the kind of person that wishes we'd shut up and just talk about the facts, watch Philly Mob. It's a documentary, which is what you're looking for. What's it on, Bill? Uh, you can YouTube it. Oh, easy. Yeah, yeah, you can YouTube it. Even though Previty is supposed to be helping to secure the Stanford regime, he's acutely aware of the dangers presented by the Merlino crew. When Joey Merlino is awarded an early release from prison, Previty sees the writing on the wall. Right. Now, remember that I said the FBI was all over these guys, right? And they see what's happening here and that Ron Previty has gotten himself in a bad spot. They swoop in and offer him a chance to cooperate, giving him information about mob activities, and they even offer to pay him a substantial wage in the process. So Previty is really kind of a douchebag at this point. He's working for Stampa, he's working for the uh, FBI, and mostly he's working for himself. He's got just a steel resolve because he could be killed 10 different ways. But guys like this that can just like go into the worst situations and keep it going and stuff. He even talks about once that he put his leg up on a table and the wire was sticking out of his leg. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and he's like, none of these boneheads saw it. <laughs> I just tucked it back in and went back on. He's an interesting character. He really is. Previty isn't the only one who feels the impending doom of a generational war approaching 
and Stanfo is trying everything in his power to bring the Philadelphia family back together. In a surprise conciliatory move, he reaches out to Joey Changolini and appoints him as his underboss. Since Joey's brother Michael Changolini is part of the Merlino outfit, he hopes they'll create some stability and get back to business. Merlino doesn't seem to want peace, however, and is soon up to his old tricks. He's directing his crew, now known as the Young Turks, to move in on the bookmakers and loan sharks that have been assigned by Stanfa to cop off Little Felix Bocchino. Obviously, Little Felix isn't appreciative of the intrusion and turns to his boss to register his beef with the Merlino crew. In the last act of diplomacy, Stanfa sends Joey Changolini to try and talk some sense into the Young Turks, of which his brother is a member. In the end, violence rules the day, which is precisely the way skinny Joey Merlino wants it. I got a story for you here. You want to hear it? Let's hear it. A uh, mob figure gunned down in South Philly, January 29, 1992, AP, Philadelphia. A gunman killed a Scarfo crime family member with three shots to the neck and head as the victim sat behind the wheel of his car in South Philadelphia Wednesday morning, authorities said. Felix Pacino, 72, was shot twice in the neck and once in the temple by a heavyset man and a dark windbreaker who fled on foot, police said. Authorities said Pacino was a longtime soldier of the Philadelphia La Cosa Nostra, first under Angelo Bruno, who was slain in 1980, and then under Bruno's replacement, Nicodemo Scarfo, who is now in prison. We would expect to see some reorganization now that Scarfo is done, said John V. Ryan, chief counsel of the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, which investigates organized crime. This may indicate that things aren't going smoothly. Pacino was behind the wheel of his 1977 Buick in the 1200 block of Mifflin Street when he was shot shortly before 8 a.m., police said. Windows on the passenger and driver's side were shattered. His body was slumped toward the passenger seat, Young said. The FBI and city detectives were investigating. At least 25 mob figures have been killed since Bruno was shot on March 21, 1980. Pacino underwent a ceremony to become a formal member under Scarfo in 1982, Ryan said. Prior to that, Pacino had been fairly close to Bruno's top advisor, Anthony Tony Bananas Caponegro, according to Ryan. He was known to have been involved going way back in gambling, Ryan said. But more recently, he was known and identified as a drug trafficker, and he also for a time collected street tax from other drug dealers. What may be going on now is some disagreement as to who will be in charge and who will take over, Ryan said. Federal authorities have claimed the mob has been severely weakened by successful prosecutions and the mob's own violence. The last known mob killing in Philadelphia was in 1985 when Frank Frankie Flowers D'Alfonso was shot outside a South Philadelphia store. I think the line of the show is going to be, this may indicate that things aren't going smoothly. Yes. <laughs> we believe there's some locker room problems with the team. It's now March 2nd, 1993, just before dawn, outside the Warfield Cafe in South Philadelphia. The cafe is owned by Michael Changolini's brother, Joey, who has recently been appointed as Stanford's underboss and has unsuccessfully tried to put the Young Turks in their place. At just before 6 a.m., Changolini and a female server enter the establishment with the expectation of another routine workday. Within minutes, three members of the Merlino crew burst in and spray the cafe with gunfire. The underboss is struck no less than five times, but Philly gangsters can be hard to kill, and he somehow miraculously survives. That's crazy. It's, it's on and on. 
The interesting thing about this hit is that the restaurant has been under FBI surveillance for a long time, so they actually have been recording film on the front entrance. I've seen the tapes. On the tapes, you can actually see the car drive by once, then it comes back, the men enter, and you can even hear the gunfire and the screams. So it was apparently the first, and to my knowledge, the only mob hit ever caught on film. If you watch that Philly mob documentary, you can see it. And uh, it's worth noting that one of the hitmen was Joey's brother, Michael. Obviously, Stanfa is not pleased with the failed reconciliation attempt and decides to take a more heavy-handed approach. He's ordered the execution of both Joey Merlino and Michael Cangolini. The day of reckoning comes on August 5th, 1993, in the form of a drive-by shooting. The man recruited for the hit on Merlino is John Vesey, and it's reported to be his first job in organized crime. Vesey is a scrappy young guy and works for Stanford's brother-in-law's construction firm. So John Vesey is no stranger to Merlino. He's actually known him since childhood. His brother was pretty tight with Joey, who you have to remember was a big in-crowd kind of guy. So apparently they ask him if he thinks he can kill a man, let alone a man that he knows. And he's like, uh, sure, you got a gun? You got any money? Just up for it. I don't know what the whole backstory is, but it seems like money and a pistol was the only motivation he needed. Just a great guy. Just born to do it. This is where the story gets even weirder. Partnered up with another Stanford hitman. John Vesey sets out to murder his childhood friends Joey Merlino and Michael Cangolini. On August 5th, 1993, the two assassins prepare to perpetrate a drive-by shooting. According to legend, when the two first saw Joey and Michael talking outside in a residential area, Vesey is stunned to see them talking to his brother. He is reluctant to risk his sibling as an unintended victim, so he does have a heart. He does have a heart. Yes. And is about to call off the hit. When all of a sudden, the conversation comes to a quick end. Joey Merlino and Michael Cangolini are alone, and sitting ducks. Under VC's orders, the car circles back around, and from the back seat, the rookie assassin opens fire. Not bad for his first job, he hits Cangolini in the chest. He will eventually succumb to these injuries in the days to follow. Merlino fares better, taking a few hits, including a bullet to the buttocks, but he's released in time to attend the funeral of his fallen friend. So Molino's injuries are often played down to a shot in the ass, but he was cut up pretty good, lying in a sizable pool of his own blood. I've seen depictions that claim he got a look at the attackers, and he knew it was John Vesey that shot him. So according to this account, he calls on Bill Vesey, his brother, and tells him that his little brother did the hit. So Bill confronts John, who denies it, and that's good enough for Billy, at least for now. Yeah. Right? So VC is a rookie at this point, but goes on to become a badass enforcer for Stanford, not just a hitman, but a collector, etc. His propensity for violence becomes a stuff of legend. There's one guy named Joe Fudge who talks some smack about taking him out, and VC ends up torturing him with a power drill. The way I hear it, he's taking a power drill and putting it in the guy's hair and ripping out clumps of his hair. Then he's drilling into his kneecaps. And he's just drilling holes in various parts of his body. Like a uh, Punisher stuff. And then just, uh, just, yeah, just murdering this guy with a drill. Then he puts a loaded gun in the guy's hand and is like, so you want to kill me? You want to shoot me? You know, stuff like that. But the guy's in no shape and the gun's just slipping out of his hand and stuff. And he's kind of like, oh, I guess you're not up to it, right? And then my understanding is he throws the guy out into the street when he's done and stuff. And yeah. the guy lives. Of course he does. Right. And now Merlino is pretty unhappy with Stanford. 
The next move is to be Joey Merlino's. It's August 31st, 1993, during the morning rush hour. John Stanfa, along with his son Joey, are being driven through traffic by an ex-military man named Freddie Aldrich. According to Aldrich, he was making his way down the expressway, acutely aware of the violence perpetrated over recent days. His senses on high alert, he notices a van coming up on his right side tail. Before he can discern a course of action, the van speeds up to his flank and opens fire. Aldrich reaches over to Stanfa and throws him down to the floorboard as his vehicle is riddled with submachine gun fire. His training seems to come in handy as he takes offensive maneuvers and forces his assailant off the road and makes his escape. John Stanfa is uninjured, but his son is struck in the jaw and has to be rushed to a hospital. He's torn up pretty good, but makes a full recovery. If you're still keeping score at home, the ball is now in Stanfa's court. He somehow gets information that a bartender named Frank Baldino Sr. is responsible for the hit on his son. He orders his new hitman VC to execute Frank, who's apparently an old family friend of the VC family. Small world. In the end, VC chokes back his sentimental inclinations and decides that business is business. Speaking of business, a famous one in Philadelphia is the Melrose Diner, a great place to catch a meal. Or so thinks Baldino. Outside the restaurant, John V.C. waits for his moment. As Baldino gets into his white Cadillac Seville, he hears what is probably a familiar voice calling his name. Before he has time to react, his old friend is upon him, delivering three quick shots to the head. He's probably dead, but this is Philly, so V.C. puts a few in his chest just to be sure. It's enough. Baldino is reduced to a lifeless corpse. At this point, V.C. kind of loses himself. He goes around bragging about his exploits. He gets a tattoo of a gun. Uh, he's basically doing whatever he wants. I even read that he was trying to shake down members of his own crew. So whatever the case, it finally gets to a point that he has to go, and Stanford puts out a hit on his hitman. But somehow his brother Billy finds out, warns him, and convinces him that his only option now is to go to the FBI. No sooner than he makes a deal with the feds, the word on the street is that he's making a deal with the feds. So uh, apparently two guys approach him and they set him up with a too good to be true business deal. And they're telling him like, hey, this is so much money that everybody's going to forget about all the stuff you ever did. It's going it's to buy your way out of this, right? Bad judgment, but he does it, right? So they take him to an isolated room, Goodfellas style. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's what happens. He walks in. I think he gets in the room and he's like, just like Joe Pesci, like, oh no, right? They shoot him three times in the head. One bounces off his skull, one lodges in his head, and the other goes through his neck, right? He staggers back. I think he turns around and he's still standing. They're kind of stunned, but one of the hitmen grabs him from behind and holds him while the other one shoots him in the chest. Jeez. He breaks free and starts punching the guy with the gun. Knocks him down, the gun goes flying out. He ends up wrestling with the other guy on the ground. Who The other guy pulls out a knife and they start wrestling for the knife. But I'm guessing in all the action and stuff and blood's pouring out everywhere, his hands wet, the knife slips out. Right, right. VC grabs the knife, swings it, slices the guy across ah! the eyes all the way to the ear, gets up, goes to the door, manages to unlock it and get out. Right? He gets into the street somehow, gets into an ambulance eventually, and he lives. Are these guys like immortal or something? It's like a bad action movie. <laughs> They're just as tough as nails. They're as tough as anybody's ever Can't been. Be killed. Zach will know. Isn't there a 
superhero. You guys were just watching a movie the other day, and they're like, yeah, you can't kill him. It's like Deadpool. Deadpool, yeah. yeah. Is that what... You can cut Deadpool's head off, and they'll just grow back. He, he's probably from Philly. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly, VC lives to testify. That's yeah, truly incredibly. amazing, yeah. You know where he's at now, I hear? He's in Indianapolis. Yes, I did hear that. Is he doing something with cars, I think? Yeah, he owns a few dealerships and stuff. Joe Pesci did not uh, live to testify. He did not. He died. He, he was no VC. No, he died. He is not. He was actually <laughs> found in an Indiana cornfield. Oh, yeah, in, ca- in Casino, yeah. yeah. Killed him and his brother in a cornfield. Yeah, it's two different movies, but whatever. And it's all same, the same. Same guy. Same actor, two totally different guys, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, it's all good. Either way. There seems to be no end to the war between Stanford and Merlino, but the feds may have an idea. On March 17, 1994, they finally arrest Stanfo on charges of racketeering, drug dealing, and a criminal's dreaded rap, murder. One of the state's best witnesses against Stanfo is, of course, John Vesey. But on October 5, 1995, the day he's supposed to testify, a funny thing happens on the way to the bank. Billy Vesey, sitting in his car at a stop sign, is approached by two masked gunmen and repeatedly fired upon. Struck at least nine times by the gunfire, there will be no miraculous escape for him. He's shot to death, to the shock and horror of his cooperative brother John. The trial is delayed, but not forever. In November of that year, Stanfa is convicted, and on July 9th, 1996, he's given five life sentences. Twenty of his associates will also go down beneath the weight of VC's testimony. Now this is where we have uh, Previty testifying as well. I saw Previty talking on a dock, and he was going, uh, you know, they shouldn't have trusted me. <laughs> I was a cop. <laughs> He's right. He goes, but I think they were, like, kind of leaning on the old ways, and the old ways were gone. Right. But he's, uh, yeah, Previty's a piece of work. He's right, though. Probably shouldn't have. Back to March of 94, Natali and Merlino team up to take over the family. Having just gotten out of jail themselves, Merlino and Natali waste no time at seizing leadership of the organization. However, it quickly becomes evident that Merlino is the man in charge, only having use for Natali as a figurehead of the family, Salerno Chin style. Four years later, in March of 1998, Anthony Tura, on trial for conspiracy to murder Merlino, is riddled with bullets outside his home by ski mask wearing gunmen. The hit takes place while Tura is on his way to the courthouse where the jury is determining his fate with other charges relating to drugs and racketeering. In the latter half of the decade, Steve Gorilla Mondavirgini, leader of the Pagans MC motorcycle gang, adds himself to Merlino's list of allies. According to Philadelphia and federal authorities, Merlino utilizes the Pagans to deal with underworld conflicts. And if we mispronounce that name, we apologize, but it's kind of our gimmick at this point. Yeah, unintentionally. It's our thing. What can you do? So this is an interesting time for the organization, not necessarily the most violent time, but the two of them are claiming to run the Philly mob, and New York doesn't seem to be intervening at all. So, But who's in charge, right? So this is the time period where you see Merlino becoming the flashy gangster in the style of John Gotti, and this is what Gunner and Bernstein kind of uh, refer yeah. to on their show. Yeah. Skinny Joey Merlino is becoming a very public media darling, but the feds have a different view of him entirely, and they're committed to bringing him down. To accomplish this, they solicit the help of Ron Previty once again. Using his reputation as a big-time earner, he manages to infiltrate the Merlino faction, despite being a known member of the old Stanford regime. Ralph Natale makes a huge miscalculation by trusting the duplicitous Previty. 
He's got nerves of steel, man. You'd have to. In the end, Ronald Previty comes through, giving the FBI three years' worth of damning recorded evidence against the Merlino clan. He places Natalie at the heart of a major drug operation. Natalie pleads guilty to eight murders and various other charges. Tough beat for Ralph. He becomes the first boss ever to turn full-on rat. He cooperates against his family. His testimony nails Merlino for racketeering. The Philly organization is brought to its knees. So I've seen an interview with uh, Natalie, and he's like, uh, why did you decide to testify against your own family? He goes, why not? Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> he's just, he's so cantankerous now, you know? And uh, it's, it's an interesting interview. And, you know, I think sometimes, though, when people come on, you have to give them something new. Right. Or yeah. why, why, why buy your book or why buy your story or whatever. So you, you kind of mix things up. See, that's why I changed it from true stories to legends when I first started doing this, because I get 20,000 sure. different stories. And, of course, I'm just some schmo. I don't know. I wasn't there. You know, so I, I changed it to legends of. Well, you could have fooled me. Some of your descriptions of these murders, I feel like you were there. Yeah, I'm creative. That's all. That's all. But uh, he, he's so everything you say, he's he kind of turns it upside down. Like they're like, uh, you know, Skinny Razor was a mentor to Nikki. Nah, he never knew him. He'd have never hung out with him. I don't know, man. You go, the sky was blue. Nah, not at all, man. You got it all wrong. The sky was never blue. But if, if I remember it right, he uh, he liked Joey Merlino. And he, he didn't talk bad about it. He was like, he was a gangster's gangster. He was a man's man, a good guy. Which is the is the really cool thing about Joey is everybody loves him. And like, all I got to do is post a picture of him on my Instagram page and it's, everybody loves him. So like, the man, the man, you know, it's it's cool. Like, I can't think of anybody that's as popular as he is. You are, honey. Me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm turning, I'm turning state's evidence on you though. I've done nothing wrong. <laughs> Well, then he really nailed the Gotti thing. Everybody loves him. Yeah. Yeah. Merlino's luck runs out in 1999 when he, along with members of the Patriarcha crime family, is indicted on charges of conspiring to purchase and deal cocaine. Two years later in 2001, Joey is given 14 years in prison, despite being cleared of the murder charges. The penalty is determined by charges of racketeering, extortion, and illegal gambling. Merlino is once again able to avoid murder charges in 2004 when he stares at taking the fall for the 1996 murder of Joseph Sedano, a New Jersey capo. Joseph Lagambi assumes the role of acting boss while Merlino is incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Institute in Terre Haute, Indiana. Joey Merlino is released from federal prison on March 15, 2011, where he's then transferred to a halfway house in Florida. In October 2014, Merlino is arrested once again this time for the much lesser offense of violating the terms of his parole after being spotted at one of the family's restaurant hangouts. He's released again in April of 2015. Today, it's reported that Joey Merlino currently lives in Boca Raton, where he denies any involvement with the Philadelphia mob and claims his criminal days are behind him. You know Joey, you've spoken to him in, in real life, haven't you? I've, I've had some communications with him. He's, he's not shy in terms of talking to media. I mean, he's never going to talk shop with media. Yeah. But, you know, George Anastasia, again, my mentor, he went and spent a whole weekend with Joey down in Florida a couple years ago. You know, Joey allowed him to come down and spend 48 hours with him and write about the, the 48 hours that they were together. Joey moved down to Florida back when he got out of prison in 2011, relocated to South Florida, and has been using intermediaries and buffers to run the family in Philly. But he's still the boss. 
comes into Philly, uh, you know, three, four, five times a year, holds court. It's always a big deal when he comes in. You know, he gets off a plane in freaking Philly, man. There's paparazzi waiting. Yeah. In, in LA too. Been in California a couple of times to visit the sister who lives out there. You got the paparazzi following him around. Just yeah. shy away from him. Most feel he still pulls the strings remotely from Florida, but good luck ever trying to prove it. This concludes the legend of Joseph Skinny Joey Molino. Interesting. Good job. Did you see the rumors that were saying, like, uh, you know, the whole election fraud thing or whatever? Yeah. People were trying to bring Joey Molino into that, saying somehow he had orchestrated the, uh, the stuffing of ballot boxes or something. I can't remember what the rumor was. But really? Yeah. And he actually, I think, went on the record and said he wanted nothing to do with this crap and leave me alone. <laughs> but I've seen pictures of him recently. He still looks great. Well, he's not old. Well, he's not old, Reed, but I mean, you think it might take something out of you being shot, being through this war, going to prison, you know. It sometimes, sometimes it wears on the, uh, the the facial expressions of a man, but he looks like a million bucks. I mean, every time I see him, he's tan and happy and smiling. And uh, Well, you've obviously never been to Terre Haute. I have been to Terre Haute. It's an oasis. Of pig farms. Yeah. <laughs> who's not, who's, who's not going to look good after living in Terre Haute? Well, he's been in Florida for a long time. I think it's that Florida sun. And, Is it? Yeah. But he's, I can't even think of who I'd compare him to, but uh, no, nah, I don't know. I don't know who I'd compare him to. Like, what gangster would you compare him to? Not even Gotti, because Merlino's sitting pretty. He's he's out. He's not in jail. He's not doing life. He's not dying in prison. Nobody, really. He's Johnny Dangerously. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, man, we did that in record time. So, Gunner's still doing the radio show, the uh, Thing Detroit. It's on the yes. Detroit Superstation 910. It's on Friday nights, 7 to 9, and uh, you should catch it. It's on iHeartRadio. It's really good. He's got some heavy hitters on there. He's gotten Larry Mazza on there. He's got Bernstein and just all kinds of authors and stuff, producers of video stuff like White Boy Rick and, uh, you know, authors of books, but really compelling, good good characters on there and stuff. A lot, nice. of, a lot of heavy talent and stuff. So, yeah, you can check it out on iHeartRadio. You can check it out uh, at the website for the 910 Superstation. I think you can check it out on the Facebook page. So it's accessible. So uh, I just specially turn it at 8 when uh, I do a segment on uh, Street Beat Crack. So uh, there's that. That's that's the best part. I had to pee for a while, so I'm going to get off here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that. Yeah, All right, let's uh, say goodnight. All right, let's have a good night and take the cannolis. And God bless. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.